last summer, during my final weeks in Harrisonburg, I suffered a serious lapse of judgment. Uh, I agreed to an overnight bike ride led by Tristan Napotnik. <laughs> if, if you don't know Tristan Napotnik, he's the son of Stephen and Leah Napotnik. Um, he, is in, he is a caveman of Austrian descent. Um, among the co-conspirators were Ed Cash and Matthew Butler. Let the truth be known. Over the course of two days, we clocked 65 miles and an elevation gain of 6,000 feet. My Strava account records day one affectionately as simply death and day two as second death. So contrary to scripture, I, I personally now believe it's, it's possible for a Christian to experience both. So, I'm, I'm not bitter though. I, I don't fault Tristan for, for not telling me that that 60% of the ride would take place on fire roads. I don't fault him for not recommending a mountain bike instead of a road bike. I don't fault him for setting an Olympic-worthy pace during the first 15 miles and letting me lead the pack. I don't even fault him for the scorching sunburn I received on day two. I don't fault him. Mike Deaton from Church of the Incarnation, a fellow biker, was um, especially helpful during this time of my life, uh, helping to mend my ego. He texted me the day after and said, and I quote, that's what you get for riding with the Napotniks. <laughs> you are now officially a member of SBC, which I googled and can confirm means the Stupid Bikers Club. No. So why do I share that story? Um, apart from cathartic reasons, um, because it's Lent. And uh, in Lent, it seems to me, if it's not irreverent to say, is a little bit like that overnight bike ride. Lent is a 40-day period when we willingly, we willingly enter into the wilderness with Jesus. If you have a Bible, turn with me to our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 4. That's going to be our passage for this morning. And let's begin by asking the obvious question, namely, why does Jesus do this? Why does he enter into the, willing, in, into the wilderness? Why does he do this to himself willingly? That question has been on my mind all week. And I've since learned that the answer is multi-layered. So let's, let's ask that question and start with the first layer, the most straightforward. Look with me at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, as I said, the first answer is straightforward, but it's not exactly satisfying, is it? Like, are we really to believe that the Spirit of God led Jesus into temptation. Do we not pray in the Lord's Prayer that our Father will not lead us into temptation? And does not James, the brother of our Lord, write in his epistle in the book of James, later in the New Testament, uh, that God himself tempts no one, and yet 
Here is God himself leading Jesus into the wilderness where the devil was waiting to tempt him. And actually for you grammar geeks, the the point can be made even stronger. Matthew constructs verse 1 as a purpose clause. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. So it's not just that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for some other purpose and, and the devil happened to be there. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for the express purpose of being tempted. What is going on here? You know, Origen, um, in the third century, this theologian of the third century said, what, the Bible doesn't contradict itself, but when it does, <laughs> um, you should look for a deeper meaning. And so that's what we're going to do. We, we find a clue when we realize that Jesus' three temptations correspond to the three temptations of Adam and Eve. So listen again to our Old Testament reading from Genesis chapter 3. You don't need to turn there. I promise you will get a Bible workout later. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So do you notice the similarities? Eve was tempted with hunger, namely fruit. Never been my temptation, but... In verse 3 of our chapter, Jesus is tempted with bread. Eve was tempted with lust. The fruit was, it says, a delight to the eyes. In verse 8 of our chapter, Jesus is tempted with all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This lust for power. Eve was tempted with a distorted wisdom that contests the wisdom of God. In verse 6 of our chapter, Jesus is tempted to do just that, to jump off the pinnacle and put God to the test. Now, when we put all of that together, what we discover is that God actually isn't tempting Jesus to do evil. He is untying, unraveling the Gordian knot of the Garden of Eden. It's like um, Christopher Reeve's cheesy 1978 version of Superman where he has to fly around the globe opposite orbit in super light speed to turn back time. Jesus is reliving Genesis chapter 3 and transforming it from a tragedy to a triumph. That's the first layer of, of, of the answer to our question. Jesus is being tempted by the devil to pave the way for a new humanity starting with him. Now, for the second layer. Look back at Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. I realize we've plopped into Matthew 4 here, but let's go back a couple verses. Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus convinces John to baptize him in order to, this phrase, fulfill all righteousness. For three full chapters now, 
Matthew has been crafting his story of Jesus in a way that unmistakably mimics the story of Israel from the beginning of the Bible. Uh, Turn back even further now to the opening verses of Matthew's gospel. Matthew 1.1. And I'll show you what I mean. This really is quite fascinating if you haven't seen this before. Matthew begins his gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But literally, it's these are the generations of Jesus Christ. Listen for how that compares with Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, our Old Testament reading. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Matthew then identifies, in that, in that same verse, then identifies Jesus as a son of Abraham, the main character in the book of Genesis. Looking down now, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we meet Jesus' earthly father, Joseph the dreamer, just as the Joseph was in Genesis. In Matthew chapter 2, we read of the Magi traveling to Jesus just as the nations streamed to Egypt for Joseph during the famine. The next section in Matthew chapter 2 has Herod killing all the male children, just like Pharaoh did at the beginning of Exodus. Jesus, however, is rescued like Moses, flees like Moses, and eventually returns like Moses. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist comes onto the scene announcing God's judgment just as Moses and Aaron do to Pharaoh. Later in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus passes through the waters of baptism like Israel passed through the Red Sea. And finally, in our current passage, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, just as Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. Matthew chapter 5, he goes up onto the mountaintop. You know, he gives this new law just like Moses did at Mount Sinai. It's fascinating. So side note, isn't the Bible amazing? Um, these kinds of connections happen all the time throughout the Bible. It, it, it amazes it. It baffles me that some would want to deny the divine authorship of the Bible as though a mere human being could make this stuff up. Because it is all throughout. End rant. Okay. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is taking great pains to show us that Jesus is Israel reborn. First, Jesus heals Adam. Then he heals Israel as he lives to make all things new. It really is starting to look like springtime. God is giving the whole world a fresh start in Jesus. So Jesus enters into the wilderness at least for two reasons. One, to transform the tragedy of Eden, and two, to relive the story of Israel. But that's the theological stuff, okay? There's yet another reason, uh, another answer, the, the main answer, the heart answer, I believe, as to, uh, to, to this question we've been asking. Jesus enters into the wilderness to contemplate his calling, to contemplate his calling. He knows at this point 
that the rest of his life will be devoted to selfless service. And on the one hand, this this anticipation really excites him, really jazzes him. I mean, finally, he can be the man he's known himself to be. No more reserving or hiding his power, his identity. For, I mean, for 30 years now, Jesus has walked past the lame, the blind, the crippled, and done nothing. That must have been really hard for him. Um, he has attended the funerals of loved ones, maybe even his own father. We don't know what happened to Joseph. We can only imagine. Maybe even the funeral of his own father. He attended this funeral, and he did nothing. He has gone to synagogue and listened to teachings about the coming Messiah and, and like, kept his mouth shut. For 30 years now, he's been waiting, waiting, waiting for his time to come, and now it's finally here, and he's giddy with excitement. He's, he's eager to make plans. Where will he go first? You know how he emerges onto the scene in his ministry, and he knows exactly where he's going. He doesn't even need a map or a compass. He's, we're going this way, and his disciples, why, not? why? Just follow me. Whom will he recruit? What will his main message be? He's excited. He's ready to plan this stuff out. Can you imagine his joy, his, his relief, having heard from the voice in heaven saying, you're my son, let's do this, and Jesus is excited. On the other hand, however, as Jesus looks down the dark corridor of his next three years, his last three years, he is sobered and serious, and, and even troubled. Jesus enters into the wilderness to be alone, to figure things out, to calculate, to count the cost. He needs uninterrupted space to anticipate and even like pre-process all of the emotions that he's going to encounter along the way. He wants space. But like a parent of four young children, he doesn't get it. He is disturbed by one devil after another. But Jesus' time is not wasted. The, the author of Hebrews tells us, you may remember, that Jesus, although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. The wilderness was Jesus' training ground, his demonic obstacle course that prepared him for a life of service culminating in the cross. That, I believe, is the main reason Jesus enters into the wilderness. It was to seek God in the most difficult spiritual terrain one can imagine and to be formed in the crucible of suffering. And now is the point when we should ask ourselves, why on earth are we following him? Like, like Tristan Napotnik, Jesus is entering into the wilderness to suffer. 
why during Lent are we actually going with him? And believe it or not, you and I actually stand at the back of a long line of Christians who have gone before us into the wilderness seeking God. As early as the late 3rd century, so late 200s, around the time when Christianity was beginning to make inroads into the, into the Roman Empire, people were starting to actually listen to their message rather than just persecute them all the time, um, particularly into the cities, thanks to Paul's missionary journeys, a steady stream of Christians began to eschew the comforts of city life and devote themselves to a lifestyle of self-denial in the wilderness. One notable example was St. Anthony, who lived from 250 to 350. It's amazing how you can live that long in the desert. So at age 20, he found himself sitting in the church, listening to the gospel reading from Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, in which Jesus says to the rich young man, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And, and Anthony says that he felt like Jesus was right there speaking directly to him. So he did exactly what the gospel reading said. He sold his inheritance, which was large. He gave the proceeds to the poor. He, um, he found accommodations for his siblings, whom he was taking care of, and, and he went into the wilderness. And from then on, his life would be characterized by solitude, battle with demons, fasting, prayer, service. And after a little while, people began joining Anthony in the wilderness. They thought of him like a spiritual athlete. They were his posse. They wanted to be like him. But of course, many of them didn't last very long, a week, a month, a year, before moving back home. It was too tough for them. The wilderness wasn't as attractive to them on the inside as it was on the outside. It's a lot like that book-made movie from a number of years ago, Into the Wild. It came out in 2007. Good gracious. Okay. In which a young man, a, a millennial, go figure, uh, Christopher McCandless, leaves the city life and makes his home in the Alaskan wilderness. By the end of the movie, I'm not going to spoil it, he dies, um, by the end of the movie, he learns what those early Christians learned, namely, uh, and, and what Jesus had learned before them, n- namely that the wilderness knows no equal. You either conquer it or are conquered by it. In the wilderness, only the saint or the demon can survive. Lent is a wilderness. It's, it's more desolate than any other season of the church year. It's, it's quieter and darker than the others. During Lent, we intensify those practices of self-denial 
that Jesus commands of us throughout the year. Fasting, abstinence, solitude. These practices are scary for many of us. Not, Not because we fear them in and of themselves, but because so many of us are terrified of being silently alone with ourselves. Whenever we're silent, what happens is we often discover the inner chaos going on in our heads, like some wild cocktail party of which we find ourselves to be the embarrassed host. Isn't that, isn't that why we refuse to lie in bed at night without our phones? Isn't that part of the reason why we despise waiting rooms or traffic? It's because in these situations, they, they force us to be alone with ourselves. And, and when we're alone with ourselves, we're forced to confront what we resent most in ourselves. All of the shame and condemnation, all of the past hurts and the old wounds and all of the unfulfilled dreams and, and the ideals to which we once aspired, all comes very quickly, rushing up to the surface like, like a suppressed beach ball in a pool. To those of you whom I've just described, Jesus says, you can't go on living like this. You cannot live the abundant life with Jesus while carrying around this enormous burden that you keep putting off, putting off, putting off. You need to deal with it. You need to confront it. You, you need to learn how to be in this wound, to slow down and look it in the eye and be alone with it and to discover within it a place of non-condemnation, of silent, loving communion with God and forgiveness. You need the season of Lent. You need this time to willingly enter into the wilderness with Jesus. Some of you, though, might already be in the wilderness just against your will through suffering. Like a, like a marriage or family crisis, the loss of a job, the crushing of a dream, the loss of a loved one, I think of the Hogan family. They didn't choose the wilderness in which they now find themselves. But there they are, in the devil's playground, staring evil and grief right in the face. And I hear they're doing it with enormous, enormous faith, which is amazing. But that's the whole point of the wilderness experience, willingly or unwillingly, to strengthen our faith. It's to be formed more and more into a suitable dwelling place for God so that His Spirit can flow through you 
and to the world. Did you know that you can be like Jesus? I'm speaking to the adults and to the children. Did you know that it is possible for you to be like Jesus? To, to resemble in yourself so many of the things you love about him. Jesus was human, just like we are. His life wasn't just God showing off. It was the clearest picture of what it means to be fully human, fully in relationship with God, fully committed to the flourishing of those around you in the world. St. Anthony taught that each of us has received our soul as a trust. Our soul is God's generous investment in us. It's, it's our God-like potential. We can strengthen it or we can weaken it. The choice is ours. God desires for us to make something of it. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit. That's why he gives us the wilderness experience, whether that's through Lent or just through pure, raw suffering. And so the final question for us this morning is, what will we do in response? What, what will we do when we follow Jesus faithfully and then realize that he's led us into a wilderness and not into a garden? we will be tempted to live by bread alone. That is, to seek our life and help from someone other than God. To test God. If God is God, we might say, he should be there. He should intervene. We are tempted to question whether God is among us or not. Prove yourself we demand of God, and we're tempted to abandon Jesus for some other master. Like, when, when God leads us into the wilderness, it seems that we have no good reason to serve him, because it's not working out. We're not getting much out of it. Following Jesus brings us difficulty and pain. Maybe another master will do better, will, will, will do us better. Maybe another master will bring us to green pastures and still waters and all that stuff that the psalmist talks about. Maybe we can find another master who will give us all things but never burden us with a cross. How do we deal with these, this inner dialogue, these temptations? How do we resist them? We live on the word of God, yes. That's what's often been said about this passage. And I want to confirm that. The, the word of God, the story of Scripture, the counsel, the wisdom of it all, it's all massively helpful in our struggle against the devil. But in our love for the word, we shouldn't forget our need for bread too. Man does not live by bread alone, but he does live, but, but like bread's good. We need bread, the bread 
that God gives every Sunday on every feast day of the resurrection on the altar. Where can both word and bread be found? Only in the church. Only in the church. The church is your oasis in the wilderness. Those who suffer within it are nursed back to health. But those who suffer outside of it, or worse, those, who, those for whom suffering causes them to leave the church and step away from it, go hungry and thirsty because they refuse to eat the bread that God gives them. If you find yourself in the wilderness this morning against your will, Jesus says to you, I am with you in the wilderness. I'm the one who led you there. I'm right here with you. Here is bread. Here is wine. Here is counsel. Here is life. And it's then when we learn that even a wilderness with Jesus can become a banquet that leads to life upon life upon life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.